Hey legends, my name is Mo and welcome to the Can't Can World podcast. I'm a Royal Marine who is dedicated to optimizing human performance and want to bring you exposure to the fantastic people supporting the same aim. Today I speak to an individual who has consistently challenged himself, developing from a timid boy to entertaining through magic on Britain's Got Talent. We talk mindset, loss, mental health and magic, which he uses to make people better tomorrow than today. This episode has been sponsored by Discrete Chaos. Head over to their Instagram at Discrete Chaos and use the promotion code CANTCANWILL21 to receive a 10% discount on all clothing. Mate, so what's the best thing you've done in the last few weeks? Um, well, the last few weeks, uh, sort of two weeks ago, I set up a, a seven-day challenge and it was giving something something out for people to get involved in. Um, but doing that made me really have to, because I was telling people to do these challenges, I really had to up my game. And uh, it had a massive positive, positive impact on my life in terms of discipline, consistency. Um, I think the main thing, just taking action. We have like a lot of, um, we talk about a lot, lot of stuff we know what we need to be doing but it's sort of common knowledge but not common practice if that makes sense so uh, yeah actually taking action on, on things and sort of kick-starting the day what was the reason for starting that challenge um it's sort of it's kind of been growing from last year when we first went into lockdown um i started looking at what i could offer um i mean for the past four years i've been a full-time magician and then we went into lockdown, there was no entertaining. Uh, and I thought, can I offer anything else other than entertainment? Um, and I was, I guess, like a lot of reflection looking at who I am and what I've done and thinking, is there anything that I'm doing in my life that I could tell people about and they could implement it straight away and have a positive impact? So I started uh, just kind of pushing things out like daily, daily fizz, getting outside, doing press-ups. Um, and then when we went into the kind of autumn time, I then sort of tried to build on it again. And I think this year it's just building on it all. And I've got a friend who's a, an online coach who's helped me put structure to it. So we were now able to to deliver something that that had, you know, like a time frame, it had structure. And it was a lot more organised than me jumping on Instagram live and saying, right, let's do some press-ups. <laughs> you know. You mate, that's how it all starts, though, eh? Yeah. Yeah. So where do you advertise that then? Um, I just put it on my Instagram uh, saying that I'm going to be doing a seven-day challenge. It's free. If anyone wants to get involved, get involved. Um, and people, a lot of people who have sort of followed me and supported me and got involved with the press-ups, came across, uh, we, we opened up a, like a private Facebook page just to have everyone in there. And then, and then what we did is we, we had sort of an initial five rules which applied for every day. Um, and that was, you know, keeping hydrated, no alcohol, no junk food, going for a morning run and, and sort of eating plenty of fruit in the, in the day, just some, some basic rules. But then each day we had a challenge and we'd give, we'd sort of give the challenge to the members. And it, it went so, so well, so much better than I thought it could have. Everyone was loving it. And, and just the positivity on the page was, was mental. There were people who, who were saying that, like literally it's changed their lives doing it. Cause it, you know, just, I think it's this taking ownership of your life um, just getting, sort of getting a grip of things and, and saying, this is, this is my life, I own this and I'm, I'm going to take charge of it. Uh, I, I suppose I suppose in a time where it feels like our lives have, are being controlled um, through no fault of our own from from you know the current situation with the virus, I suppose it's quite a refreshing change for a lot of people where they, it, it allows them the opportunity and almost permission to take control. There must be. Did you have good uptake? Um, yeah, we've got um, sort of a good few hundred on there. Um, and I think, like like you said, yeah, it gives, it gives people the opportunity to implement their own structure onto their life, uh, which is essential, really. I think that's a yeah. With the lockdown, because I noticed a lot of similarities with leaving the corps. Um, when I left the Marines, I lost my my structure and my discipline, as well as my social circle and all this sort of stuff. But that 
one of the main things was not having that, you know, your, your, your weekly structure. And I thought people who have gone into lockdown have been furloughed from work are now sitting at home and they've got to implement their own, their own structure. Yeah, mate, that sounds fantastic. And I wish, I wish you all the best with that. It was really good. Last year, I was a bit of a bit of a legend in my house. And unfortunately, it was nothing to do with me, um, which I which I'm pretty disappointed about. So my daughter thought I was the best thing since sliced bread, because when your face popped up on the telly on um, on that on that TV show, Britain's Got Talent. And I said, oh, I know him. That was it. I was like I was like this celebrity in my own bed space. Um, which was which was really cool, and then that lasted for about a week. So when I said, "Oh yeah, I know him," she went, "Yeah, I know, I know that, I know that, Daddy. You already said that to me." So yeah, it was short lived anyway. How on earth did you end up on on that that TV show? What, what and can you explain the story and the and the process behind it? Yeah, it's quite quite a, a mad experience, really, because it's sort of the culmination of years of performing. Um, when I left the Marines, I, I then went into magic. And this was a bit of an unintentional transition into a, a career as a magician. Um, but it, it's, it, was, it was really cool. And it, I got chatting to the, the guys in Britain's Got Talent. We were speaking about it kind of Christmas time. Well, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Just rewind on what you just said there. I kind of got talking to the guys in Britain's Got Talent. I mean, I can't just walk down the street and just go and speak to them. I mean, how did that happen? Like, were you put in touch with each other? Did you were you headhunted? Were you did you knock on it? Like, how did that happen? That's not a normal statement to make. Just today, no. Um, yeah, they they got in touch with me and said that they loved the just this concept of a marine doing magic, and they they loved the concept. They said, "Do you want to come on the show?" And I, I couldn't deny that, you know, it was an absolutely fantastic opportunity, but I was a close-up magician and they were asking, like, can you do something big and dangerous? And I was, I was like, no, nah, I can't do it. And I think that it's that, that always that initial feeling I have is that I want to, I want to turn down opportunities. I want to say, no, nah, I can't do it. That's not for me. I, I'm not the right person. Um, but I couldn't, I, I I kind of I dragged my heels a little bit, but I couldn't deny that it was, you know, to give to give the profile the exposure. Um, and at the time, me and my little brother were working on a. We've got this this thing in the pipeline as well, these motorbike adventures, and um, we wanted to build up a profile for that. So it, it kind of it it came at a very good time for us uh, in in doing that. So, so what? So you said, yeah, right then, I'll think about it, and then he went back to him and went, yeah, okay. So how? Yeah, you know, we only ever see the glitz and glamour on the on the TV. What what's the process like for for that particular show? Um, I I got chatting to a guy. They they sort of assigned me a an advisor who helped me put the routines together. And one of the first routines that we did, and I performed it to Simon Cowell. Um, and it's where we put my commando dagger underneath a bag. Simon Cowell put my commando dagger underneath a uh, paper bag, and I was working out which which bag it was under. Um, I mean, when they first were looking at it, they like had this idea, and they wanted to use like this big, like a big hunting knife. And I said, if we're using a knife, it's got to be the commando dagger. Um, and we had a lot of back and forth and chatting, and then I went through to Blackpool. Blackpool's kind of the heart for magic uh, in the country, and I went through to Blackpool. Uh, and and rehearsed rehearsed the performance of how I was going to do it, and it was quite it was hard work, you know, sort of learning the script, learning, and I'd never performed on stage before, so I was massively out of my comfort zone. Um, it's a very daunting task, and I think that's why initially I wanted to say no, I can't do this because it's in front of two thousand people. Um, so I just kind of pretended it wasn't me. Was this on the live shows? Yeah, for the for the audition, the audition was live. Was there any was there any auditions before that? Like, or did you just go? Did you just get the, the monopoly pass? Go straight to straight to Mayfair, don't pass go sort of thing. Yeah, I kind of jumped in there. There is there is like a selection process to to get there, but you're obviously good. <laughs> yeah. So so how? Do, I wanted I want to go back. To, I don't just want to fleet over what you just said there. Um, you, you mentioned about your initial reaction is to say no to things. What? Why is that? Um, I think because it's anything out of your comfort zone 
it's unknown, it's daunting. I guess the fear of failure, but I would, before this point now, having this conversation, I would have always said that I don't have a fear of failure, but I guess that's, that's what it is. Um, you're in, you know, you're going to be in front of 2,000 people. It's going to be on TV, in front of the nation, in front of 12 million people, and then on YouTube and, and that sort of stuff. And it's, we've seen people mess up on Britain's Got Talent and the whole nation laughs at them. And um, yeah, I think there's that, I, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to look stupid in front of everyone. And there was a, bit, a big part of me was, I felt it was quite chad to do it. You know, I was thinking, what are the lads in the core going to think? And then I had to remind myself that the core's 6,000 people. And this Marines. is going to, to, yeah, the Marines. Marines, 12,000, uh, 6,000 people. This is going out to, to 12 million. So it's kind of like, yeah, it is a bit chad, but also this is now my, this is now the next chapter of my life. And it's sort of doing what I, what I need to do to build a profile. And um, yeah. But, but even after all of that, you're thinking to yourself, you're out of your comfort zone, but you still did it anyway, clearly. What, yeah. what was the situation around that? Because there'll be people listening listen here that, that may suffer from like performance anxiety, for instance. Like what, what was it that you went, no, I'm just going to do it anyway? I think it's um, doing the rehearsals. So running through it, running through it sort of like a mock, like a mock interview or like, like a mock performance. And I would, I would set things up uh, sort of in the living room kind of and visualize how it would be on stage and run through it as though I was performing on stage and just kind of kept beasting that side of things um, and then that combined with uh, getting into like meditation almost and taking a moment to, to sit to breathe to try and calm myself down because I get quite you know get nervous about it um, and I think I think something to remember is it's. I was chatting to a guy recently about it, and he, he was sort of saying, "It's it's not all about you, you know." And, and we sort of put so much pressure on ourselves. But when I got out there, you got yeah, there's two thousand people in the audience, but they've all come because they're family and friends of other acts. They're all there to support. They're there for a good evening. They're loving it, and they you know they're there to like applaud and like they're, they're just loving the um the act so yeah it's not no one's out to get you if if you know what i mean it doesn't it doesn't really it doesn't really matter um i think we can we're very good at working ourselves up and almost like psyching ourselves out of something um and then another thing is i just kind of almost put myself into a third person and just pretend <laughs> it's like it's not happening to me it doesn't really matter and just almost to a point where I'm just going through the motions and I know the script that I've got to do. I know the performance. So I'll just, I'll just kind of concentrate on that side instead of being overwhelmed by the fact that I'm stood on stage in front of loads of people. Um, I'm like really conscious. I don't want to mess up. How, how hard did you prepare for, for your audition? Um, well, it was a, the audition was a bit of a fastball. Um, and I think that's why I, I felt like a lot of pressure. I was when I was going through my rehearsal in Blackpool. That was on Friday, and I knew that I was going to Manchester on the Wednesday. And I said to the guy in the afternoon, Friday afternoon, I said, "So when I go to Manchester, am I like performing to mock judges, or what's it going to be?" And he's like, "No, you're in front of Simon Carroll and two thousand people." And I was like, "What? <laughs> this was Friday afternoon, so." Um, yeah, I think that's what that, so the next few days I was, I was like, ah, oh, this is happening, <laughs> you know, and I had to, yeah, I had to just go through my rehearsal. So it was quite a short period before I was then on stage. Because I think it's interesting because I think that we can often, you know, it's arguable that we get a little bit misled by people's success because it's quite easy to advertise all the great things that, that you've done and, and what other people are doing. But behind that adver advertisement is actual hard work. Yeah. I think, well, for, with, with the magic, I think for the last last four years, um, I spent working as a, as a full-time magician. I was doing uh, like a lot of events and weddings. Um, before that, you kind of go back 10 years that I've been working with the magic and, and building it up and 
Um, as it's as as it's gone well, there's been more and more self-inflicted pressure. And when I'm getting paid, you know, sort of putting the prices up, and then I'm getting paid money to go to these events, and I'm the entertainment for the event. And there's a lot of uh, oh, you're yeah, worth lot, it. Yeah, yeah. You think, yeah, exactly. Uh, sort of that imposter syndrome. So you get through the first audition and nailed it for what it's worth. Like it wasn't, it wasn't Chad. And and for those listening, Chad means like a bit cheesy. Um, it's a it's a marine term. Just in case anyone was confused, it wasn't that at all. I didn't think. I thought it was class. I thought the way that you, it came across was it was you know a proud moment. I thought you know for everyone that knew you to watch it, it looked it looked incredible. And so was the semi final as well. So the format was audition. They say yes, and then you go into a pool of people they select from. Is that how it works? Yeah. So the judges. They, they give a lot of yeses on the, through the auditions, but they can only select 40. So I think you get, you get maybe a few thousand people applying to go on Brits Got Talent. And from that, they select, say, 300. You know, there's a few, a few hundred which go to the t- TV auditions. And from that, from that 300, 40 get selected to then go to the semifinals. And so how did that work then? So you've done your audition. you happy yeah. with your audition? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, like I said, it was. I was very daunted by it. Um, but then when I got out on stage and I performed, and at the end, the, the crowd, everyone stood up and was clapping, and they were, they were chanting, like, push the gold. And, you know, they were and, – and Simon Cowell came up onto stage and shook my hand, and he's like, that's hoofing, you know. It was um, – it was a really good, it felt like a really good moment. I have my, my family there. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I, I forgot what the question was, man. Sorry. Were you happy with your performance? Yeah, I was happy with it, yeah. Yeah. So you walk away, go home, and then wait for a phone call. Is that how it worked? Um, Did you think you'd done enough to get through? Yeah, it felt like it went well. Yeah, I, so I thought I, I would was expecting that I might I might get through yeah um and then yeah I waited for because then we 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 went into lockdown the auditions were filmed in February and then they they went on TV in April so obviously we'd gone into a lockdown so everything was mega uncertain um and everything just kept getting pushed back and pushed back because normally they would they would play the auditions and then off the back of that they would have a week of semi-finals and then have the finals um, and it just kept getting pushed back and pushed back. And I was kind of conscious that I wanted to work on the semi-final routine, but no one knew what was happening. A lot of the a lot of the crew had been laid off, like furloughed from it. Um, so yeah, it was there was a. I didn't really know when the next bit was going to go. They kind of kept me in, uh, kept me up to date. Um, and then I think it was in July the ball started rolling again. But do. That announcement, though, did you? How long after the audition did you find out that you'd made the semi-finals? Um, it was a few weeks. I can't remember. Yeah, there was a few weeks of of waiting and suspense, and they, they sort of literally let you know just before the public knows. Um, how did that feel getting? There? Did a phone call? Was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really good. Yeah, it sort of feels like so long ago now. It was, yeah, last summer. I remember jumping outside into to the van and like sitting in the van, like to take a phone call. And and they were like, yeah, congratulations. You, you go. And I was like, you know, that that's it's amazing. Like, because at first I, I thought, oh, there's no, there's no chance that I could ever win this. And then at that point I thought, what if I could? You know, what if I, what if I, you know, try and ramp it up and yeah. That's your, that's your imposter syndrome talking in yeah. the air, isn't it? So you go and do the semi-finals, which was amazing again. Um, there's no other... You'll never get to jump out of a box again on live TV. You know, like it, was, uh, it, was, it was pretty incredible. And that, one's, that one's quite special, the way that you did, did, did that particular performance. And I think anyone listening who didn't see it, I think it's worth going online and having a look at it because the, the story behind it was really, really nice. Disappointed when you wasn't selected for semi-finals or for, for the finals? Yeah, I was. Um, 
I mean, I, at the time, like I had loads of support and a lot of stuff. I, I normally like use Instagram as my my platform for pushing out. And Aunt Middleton and Jason Fox and Ollie Ollerton, like all these guys are sort of sharing on the sh- stories, Jay Morton. And there was so much, yeah, so much support. And, I, and a lot of people messaging me to say, we've voted all for you, all the family voted for you. And, I, and you I, use your, all the four votes you're allowed to, or whatever, <laughs> on, on, like, all, all for you. <laughs> yeah. And I, I thought, wow, do you know what? I reckon I, reckon I might get through. So when, um, when I got the phone call and I said, oh, sorry, you, you haven't made it through to the finals. Yeah, I was, I was disappointed. Um, I guess this is, you know, it's the way, the way it goes. Well, I think you can be proud of your, of your achievements, you know, and, and I think, you know, you know, as much as anybody else, that adversity is almost a passage of right to further success. And, you know, what, by what you seem to be doing, and what you've said that you're doing now is obviously built for that moment. So, um, you know, had you been to the, gone to the final, you may not be doing what you're doing now. Yeah, that's right. So how did, have you always been, I mean, you must be, to go on Britain's Got Talent, like you say, you know, 12 million people uh, watching worldwide, 2,000 in the crowd, all your friends and family there, you know, the pressure's quite a lot. Well, it's immense, really. Have you always, you must have a lot of confidence to do that. Have you always ha- had that confidence? Nah, not at all. I, I, I still consider myself as shy. Um, I, was, I was a shy, insecure kid uh, growing up. Um, and I liked magic when I was a, when I was a young lad. But back then, it was it was really geeky, and I was already just shy and skinny. I think it's this thing as well because I was, I was born at the end of July, so I was one of the youngest in the year. And as a child, like a year, a year's worth of growth is like a lot of difference in kids. So I was because I was like one of the youngest in the year. I was one of the smallest, one of the skinniest. Um, which obviously didn't didn't help things. Um, so now I was I was I was shy and insecure. So it's it's taken and you know I've sort of it's been a long journey to kind of get to a point where people think that I'm a confident person. But maybe that's the maybe that's the attraction of yourself though, where you, you know you're unknown known you personally. You're not a brash individual. But the confidence doesn't have to be loud, I suppose. It, it, you know, your confidence your own ability. You can be unassuming and still be really confident. And maybe, like you said, that's that's the the journey and the view to the point where you are now. Yeah, I guess I guess it's acceptance, really. So it's like I accept who I am now, and it's I'm no longer at a point where I'm wishing I was someone else. I'm I'm happy I'm me. I wish I was me. But growing up, I was always wishing I was someone else. Do you know why that was? Um. I guess I guess I'm accepting myself. I, I don't know. Um, I used to look at you know, like I don't know. Well, yeah, I literally wanted to be anyone, anyone else. Than you know, really, I really wasn't happy with being me. Um, and so, how old were you at the time when you were thinking that? Um, I mean, all the way, all the way through my childhood, really, until until becoming a young adult, and then I started. I went into the the Marines when I was 22, um, and I was I was happy. I guess I mean I, I think the Marines builds you a very solid foundation, which I'm very grateful for. Um, I guess pre that kind of a kid into my teenage years. What was that? What was that like? Like, I mean, because I I and I asked that question because I've never experienced that before like wanting to be someone else I've always I think I've always wanted to be better than I and improve myself as a person I must be quite lucky um fortunate but what was that what did that what was that like um I never never really thought of it um well you got to bloody think of it now because I've asked you the question yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um I don't know I guess it sort of gave me the drive to I, I guess because I was small and skinny that's why I wanted to to lift weights and and be bigger, um, and I guess it gave me the drive to to go the way that I've gone. Um, yeah, I guess it's not it's not a great place to be. Sort of wishing you were you were someone else. Um, 
I mean, and I asked that question because I think it's very current in the in the child population there's a lot of mental health issues for exactly that reason and I mean you're you're getting on a bit now so social media wasn't really a, a as much of an influence as it in, is now yeah but you know trying to promote being comfortable and happy with yourself if you could tell your younger self some advice now what would it be um I think look at you know if you're not happy with something it's looking at can you can you change it you know so i wasn't happy because i was skinny can i change it yeah i can get some weights and i can start lifting weights and i can make i can sort of build my frame a bit more so first of all i guess have a look at the situation and can you change it and then if you can't change it you you have to accept it because otherwise it's gonna it's it's really gonna damage you inside you've, you've got to You've got to accept it and and in doing that change your perspective on the situation. I think that, yeah, it must be, if I was if social media had been around when I was growing up, like it is now, in it it must be like a, a lot must be a lot worse. I know when I when I've been doing magic and I, if I look on Instagram, anything related to magic, you you're basically comparing yourself to the best in the world. And it's not it's not good, it's not healthy. And it's, um, I think what you've got to do is then, like if I compare myself to Instagram magicians, you know, they're, they're absolutely amazing. But then I've got to look at who I am and I'm, well, I'm a Marine and I do magic and I'm, I'm different to that. And I think you can be the, if, you tr- if I try and compete against them, I'm always going to fail. But if I be the best me that I can be, then, then that's when I'll win. And I think that you're yeah, going back to accepting yourself looking at how I can improve me uh, instead of trying to catch up to other people. It's really interesting what you just said there, to use your words, that Instagram magicians, as far as I'm concerned, you are an Instagram magician. You know, so like it's, it's interesting because you're a magician on Instagram. It's like, you know, like, and that's what you do. That's That's what you've been doing for a long time. And it's really, really interesting that it must be, I'm assuming, a constant reminder daily about being consistent and about believing in your, in yourself to be able to get to where you need to go, not where you other people have gone. Yeah, I think just looking at where you want to go, reverse engineering that, and then looking at the implementation process of what you need to be doing on a daily basis to deliver you to that destination, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So you were a young, a young kid through self-admission, shy, self-conscious, skinny, and then you joined the Marines. Uh, how? How did that happen? <laughs> well, the first thing, like I went, I went, I had a little stint in the army first. And again, <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> I didn't I didn't think I was good enough to be a Marine. Really? So I, I didn't even try. I was like, um, Marines are like supermen. I'm not a superman. I can't do that. I'll, I'll join the army. Um, like I wanted to go into the military and I think looking back at it, uh, obviously being this shy, skinny kid, the soldier is the epitome of, a, of an alpha male, a warrior, this strong, a strong individual. So looking back at, you know, photos, I'd always, I was very outdoorsy and very active. And I think it was inevitable I was going to go into the military. And when it came down to it, I remember a lad at uh, school saying to me, oh, why don't you join the Marines with me? And I said to him, I, I can't join the Marines, they're supermen. And, uh, and, I, and so I didn't even contemplate the idea. I just, I sacked off. And it wasn't until I joined the army in 2002. Um, I deployed out to Iraq in 2004. Um, and I was in Basra as a, a mini-me gunner on the back of the Snatch Land Rovers in Basra City Centre. And I remember looking around at the lads that I was working with and I sort of felt like, wow, I'm, I'm more professional than this. I'm, I'm, I'm more keen. I'm, I'm physically fitter. I was, I was always trying to push myself physically. Um, and obviously that tour, tour of Iraq was like, I was quite naive when I went out there. I was, I was young. I didn't really know what I was doing and I, I didn't really enjoy it. Um, and I left when I came back and I, I spent a bit of time traveling. I'd saved up some money 
and I traveled for a bit. But when I was traveling, I just had this itch to go back in, in the military. And it was, I was like, I want to give the Marines a shot. I want to, I want to give that a shot. And in hindsight, I wish I'd just gone for the Marines right at the very start. And I guess that's, that's a bit of advice I'd give to anyone listening who's thinking about something is just go for it. Like take action on it. I had a chat with a, a lad um, who's, who's in training right now uh, at Catrick to go into the army. And I had a chat on the phone and I said, if you're seriously considering like the Marines as an option, I would, I would suggest that you try and transfer over to training now. And he's like, yeah, I'll do a few years in the army. Then I'll join the Marines and do a few. And it's like, we like to, I guess when you're young, you've like, your future just looks like so long. It's like, I've got so much to that time to do anything. I'll do a bit of this and I'll do it. And it actually goes pretty quick. And I think the, the sooner you get at something, then you can test and adjust. Um, so I wish I'd gone for the Marines first, but yeah, so I was shy, skinny kid. I, I ended up going into the, into the military that sort of built on the confidence I built on my physical strength. Um, and it ignited this little desire in me. I remember seeing the Marines up at Basra Palace. Um, and I remember look, I was in, on, on the top cover on a snatch. I remember like looking at them with the, with the Royal Marines commando flashes. And I was like, that is so cool. Like I, I want that. So where did the, the itch come, come from? You left the military. What was the reason for leaving the military? Why didn't you just transfer straight over? Or, or go for training from from the army. Um, I felt like after, like I was a bit naive going to Iraq. Uh, I didn't really enjoy the tour, and when I came back, I I wanted to just kind of like I wanted nothing to do with it. I guess I needed a break. I needed like a bit of space, um, and it kind of coincided with one of my friends was coming up to finishing university and having a gap year, and he was like. We, we, we were both chatting. He's, he's an old friend. And we're like, well, let's go, let's go travel around the world. So I think I needed that break as well before joining the Corps. So you joined the Marines. Was it, did you feel it was a significant step up from Army? Or what, did you cope with it well? Or how, how did you find it? So I yeah, it was a massive step up in terms of in terms of fitness, professionalism, the caliber of lads who were going through training, the instructors, um, like everything. Just it was really it really cranked it up. Um, I felt like previously I just kind of breezed through into it, and I, I was all right running. I kind of did this, but then going into the Marines was was really hard work. And I think one of the main things that I noticed was. The, how how much the good behavior is rewarded and bad behavior is punished. So you, everyone joining has their own moral compass. But then when you get, if you go and make yourself a Jack wet, if you go and make yourself a cup of tea and don't offer to make one for, for the lads, it's, it's like this kind of selfish behavior is punished and it gets, it gets flagged straight up. Um, and, and equally um, like good behavior, you want to be a good egg. You want to, you want to square the lads away. And it encourages all the lads to be looking after the lads. And I, I found that wasn't the case. Uh, my experience in the army, there was, there was a lot of bullying. There was a lot of theft. Um, and yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't great. But when I went into the Marines, it was, you were encouraged to help each other out and work as a team, work as a unit. Um, and yeah, like I say, sort of bad behaviour was, was punished. Good behaviour was rewarded. And was it full of superhumans? <laughs> nah, it's just full of lads. Um, but what? So what? What sort of lads, though? You know, what sort of people were they? You know, because remember you said that the reason why you didn't want to join the Marines because you like didn't even contemplate because you thought I'm not superhuman. Yeah. So what is what is it? Who are they? You know, because you're you're obviously one of them. I guess it's just it's the people that have just taken action. They've they've made that decision and they've gone forwards and put in the application. And, and gone for it. And I wish I'd, like I say, I wish I'd started that process four years earlier. I suppose fate has its, has its role and everything happens for a reason. Um, you passed out of training. 
and you became a not initially but became a medic yeah so what was the reason behind becoming a medic i mean that's so when you're when you're looking at a fighting arm like the royal marines which is perceptually bayonet fixing you know point troops amphibious ship to shore medics are hugely important don't get me wrong but that seems to be a, a change in step from what you were seeking when you originally joined. Yeah, it was. So I joined and I um, I went out to Afghan uh, in the first kind of year or so of joining. Obviously, Afghan was pretty hot at the time. Um, and as part of the, the pre-deployment training, I'd done some medical, like the FA1, FA2, just basic, probably basic medical uh, procedures, courses. When we went out to to Afghan, I was um, I was like the sergeant's runner as a fifty one mil mortar man, and I sort of enjoyed that role. And we we dealt with a few. We had a, obviously casualties, um, and and I don't know what it was like at the time. I had for my preferences, I had PTI and medic, and not they were looking enough to be a PTI. I know, yeah. <laughs> it's not, mate. Sorry, failed. <laughs> Oh, mate. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, so we, I mean, like, every incident that we took a casualty, uh, I just, I, I sort of took it upon myself to deal with it. It's like, oh, I've got this. I felt comfortable with what I was doing. Um, so and I, I dealt with with these casualties, dealt with the, the trauma, um, and just kind of went through through the stuff. And, and I felt like, Here's something that potentially I'm good at and I enjoy, and it's squaring the lads away. It's like it's it's been a good egg. Like I want it to be, you know, be of use, I guess. Um, and and so that that kind of cemented this idea that I'd go down the medical route. I mean, it seems to me from what you've said so far that you've got an, an innate ability and desire to help people. I mean, that seems to and that seems to be. You know, magic is not just about tricks and 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 you know sleight of hand and the type of magic you're in. It's about entertaining people and making them feel good. You know, doing what you're doing now and making people accountable and take action is about making them making them feel better about themselves. And I suppose that that was already starting to happen when you were getting ideas about becoming a medic. Um, I mean, I did think that I chose the wrong branch. For, for a period of time, you know, I went down down the medical route um, and then I looked at branch transfer and again, like PTI was the where I wanted to go. Um, but yeah, that, like they said, you know, not, not good looking enough. So uh, you have to stick with being a medic. So I listened to another podcast that you're on where I didn't know this about your name. Was it this Afghan where your nickname came or was it a later tour of Afghan? No, it was... It was um, that it, that that tour, but a couple of years later, right? Um, one, one of my one of my good mates uh, kind of gave me the nickname. So let's not like stop there. Let's let's find out what that is then, because you know, Mama Stott didn't call you Still when you were two years old. Look at baby cute little Still. We're walking over. It's James, isn't it? You know. So where yeah. did Still come from? Uh, so is this? Yeah, one of, one of my good mates in the core decided that he'd call me Steel. Um, and obviously the, the sort of dip behind that, treating that lad in Afghan, um, we'd had, so that, that was an incident that unfortunately we lost, we lost a, a good chap. Um, and in the same, in the same blast, um, one, one of the lads was, was quite badly wounded. Uh, and I, it was one of those, yeah, sort of one of those moments where we've had a, you know, a big blast has gone off. Everyone takes a knee, uh, and it just kind of like rains down mud and debris and shit. And it's that that weird kind of silence. And then I heard a lad shouting, screaming. And again, it was one of these things. I was like, "Yeah, I've got this. I'm on this." So I was, you know, I've, I've got this. And all the lads have taken a knee, kind of herringbone down through this field. And I ran ran past them, just just running towards where the screaming was, and jumped across this wadi, like this little stream and tree line, jumped across, seen the lad. Um, and he had, you know, he was sort of taking a bit of a hit. So I was putting a tourniquet on him and started like getting a, a dressing on his wounds. And we came under like 
pretty intense fire. And then that's when, yeah, I just, I kind of put my back to the enemy and just, I had this vision that if I tried to like drag him out, the dressing would get snagged and pull off and it'd all be like a, a big bag of admin. So I thought I want to like get him all wrapped up nice and neat. And then, and then I got a grip of him, ran him back to the wadi, jumped down into him, held his head out of the water, gave him a morphine, and then Kazi backed him um, out of there for some lads. But yeah, what, like a few years later, sort of spinning this dip, or just chatting, you know, or you're chatting over some wets and uh, this guy. Oh, that wets are drinks, by the way. For drinks, those that yeah, having a drink, chatting. <laughs> um, and the guy, the guy used to live below me, so. I used to like bang on my floor and he'd come running up and we'd have some wets. <laughs> um, but he, des- he decided to, to rename me Steel. Um, and at the time, as, I was like, yeah, that's cool. And I, I, I changed everything. So on Facebook, I changed my name to Steel. And I was then Steel for, for years. Up until the, the only reason I, my name changed back was last year when I went on Britain's Got Talent. And they said, yeah, you can't be called Steel. Like, what's you know? Because we want all the audience to relate to you, so we're gonna call you James. You know, can you? And um, and I and the thing is, like, I said to my I said to one of my friends, I want a magic name. You know, when the magic was taken off, and they said, well, you're already called Steel. That that name's already established. Roll with that. So Steel then kind of became the magic name as well. Um, but then last year when I was like, do I keep steel? Do I stay strong with that? Or do I go to James? And, uh, you know, my, my brother was like, well, steel was, he, he brought out this old photo from when I, it was like one of the very first gigs I'd done. It was at a golf club down in Cornwall. And I'd rocked up. They'd asked me, they said, come along, do some magic and we'll give you free beer. Uh, and I'd rocked up and they didn't, they had these t-shirts, but they'd run out of t-shirts. They only had girls t-shirts left. So they gave me this girl, like a girl's T-shirt, and I cut it into this, like, into a vest, and I was doing magic, and there's a photo of me with a bit of stubble. I'm doing magic, um, and, and my little brother's like, that's steel. Now now you're James again. Do you, do you know what I mean? And I guess it's, it's almost coming back to, like, accepting, accepting who I am. Yeah, no, it, it makes perfect sense. Can you, can you describe your experiences with, with mental health? Um, I mean, obviously, there's times there's times in life that um, sort of knock you down, um, and if you if you're not careful, it's very easy to to end up on a downward spiral. It's like if you what feels like a good choice at the time or what you want to do isn't necessarily the the right thing to do. So you might want to drink, and you might want to blow out, you might want to eat you know, unhealthy foods and stuff. And what you really should be doing is at, right, at that time, you're very fragile almost. And it's like, you can easily put yourself on a downward spin. And, and I think it, it happens to a lot of people. I know I've, I've sort of blown out in the past and I've, I've hit the drink hard and, and that. And it's what you need to do is, is sort of look at what's good for you, you know, keeping, keeping hydrated, keeping a healthy diet, um, keeping on top of, you know daily fizz keeping in touch with your friends having like either a coffee or even if it's like a virtual coffee uh, and a chat like look at what what's good for you and just do that even if you don't want to do that like you don't want to go out running and you don't you know maybe you don't want to chat to to the lads because you you feel like a sack but it's you you need to do the uncomfortable doing the easy things like having a drink and eating bad food isn't going to help you. It's make it's taking those steps that are going to take you down. Did you just decide to take action, or was there other set of circumstance where you that supported you in taking that action? Do you sort of mean? Yeah, um, I think so. When I've had little blowouts, I've had the the Marines around me, so it's been I've been lucky to have been picked up quickly. So when I've had uh, blow out like after Afghan um, I kind of got picked up was, I think it was my family at first that sort of got in touch with the, the doctors on camp and said look can you just can you check in with him and then I you know started chatting to people and went down that that route so it was people around me that kind of picked me up um, 
And then again, a few years later, when I had a another sort of smally blowout, I was I was trying to trying to just re- suppress it all. I was like, I can crack on, I can crack on. And it was I was stood, I was about to go on a is a fastball deployment to Mali with uh, four or five commando mortars to go train the Malian army. And I was at the time I'd been asking for deployments. I was itchy to get away. I was, but then I had this issue going on, and I stood in front of the sergeant major, and it was as soon as he started like, "What's what's the matter?" And I was like, "No, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine." And I just cracked, you know, cra- I remember cracking in his office, and he's like, "Okay, before you go, I just want you to touch base with welfare," and obviously, like in the Marines, that's like a big. You know, just, you describe, just describe what welfare is. Um, so basically, uh, we had a bloke, a sergeant major appointed to look after the welfare of the lads on camp. And if you had an issue, maybe you were going through a separation, maybe you're going through grief and loss, you touch base with him and he sees, it's how can, how can we keep moving forwards? instead of lads dealing with a problem by themselves and blowing out and getting in trouble with the police or whatever it might be. Um, so I had to go see, but it's a, there's a bit of a stigma attached to going to see the welfare officer because it's, it's, it's almost like you can't handle your problems yourself. And, and so I think it was, it was kind of good because it wasn't my choice to go and see welfare. Like obviously at the time I needed to go, but I, was, I, was, I wouldn't have gone. And the sergeant major said, "Go, go touch him. Go touch base with him," um, which I did. Uh, and again, I, I just kind of—it's a place where you, I guess you can just break down a bit because that's that's what it's there for. Um, and he looked at the situation and said, "Actually, <laughs> we don't think that you're going to deploy. Let's just hold you back. Let's give you some compassionate leave. Let's let's see if we can work around this." And, and I'm very grateful to the to the Marines for for allowing me that. And I think I'm lucky because my sergeant major and the OC um, had both been in similar situations and they could see exactly what I was dealing with. And I think that's that always helps is having people around who who have maybe dealt with the same problem and uh, can you know can sort of see what you what you're dealing with. Was that was that uh, tour related? Like, can you explain your that situation at all? That, that that second situation was um, like when dad was diagnosed with cancer um, and it was, yeah, it was like, ah, <laughs> like your whole, like your, your world, as you know, is just, just smashed because it's like, okay. Uh, but it, essentially it's one of those things that it's inevitable and I'm so, I'm grateful that life has panned out this way that I've, I've been able to say goodbye to my dad instead of it being the other way around because if, if he had had to say goodbye to me if I didn't come back from Afghan that would have that that's a not the natural way to do it at least this is like the natural way of doing things and it's inevitable and I, it's one of those things that I think like why did it hit me so hard like why no one sort of flags it up and says oh by the way you, you're probably going to lose your parents and it's going to hurt you know no one you just kind of you almost like mug it off and, and then when it happened, you're like, wow, that came out of nowhere. But it, it's inevitable it's going to happen. What was the time difference in, in terms of your father passing to that happening? What, get, what getting diagnosed and passing away? What, so your, your father passed away and then you said you had a, you had a little bit of a wobble. What was, the, is there, was there a, a big window in between that? No, is that that kind of? He he was diagnosed in February and and he passed away ten weeks later, and I think I'd been given some compassionate leave, so I was able to be at home with him. No, I think it then hit me later. It was obviously I had that initial grief, um, and it's weird. Like the first year, like we as a family were like, yeah, okay, let's let's be positive. What can we take away from this situation? Right, this hoofing. Then the second year, I, I think the second year we just, that's when I blew out. Maybe I think it, it sort of stacked up and um, I, hadn't, I don't know, I hadn't released it properly or it kind of built and built and then, yeah, I had a blowout. 
Mate, mine was six years in between. Oh, really? Six years. Yeah, that's oh. what I was interested to ask because, yeah, you just get on with it. And then, yeah, deal with it later, deal with it later. And then you don't bother dealing with it. And then out of nowhere, like a right hook that just smacks you square straight in the face. You know, where did that come from? But you kind of know where it came from but because you hadn't yeah. done anything about it. And what I found was really interesting was you think it's your pro- it is your problem, but you think it's just you. But you don't like open, you don't take perspective and go, people die all the time. That's life. That's what happens in life. And I remember coming back to, it was at 40 Commando and Sam Sheriff was the TQ. Um, so he was a, a stores, um, stores guy for one of the companies. And I remember him coming over the office and I was speaking to Sam and, uh, and he said, everything all right. And I told him what had happened and Sam went, yeah, me too. And I was like, whoa, what other people have lost a parent? That's, yeah. I just, and it just sort of like put a bit of perspective on it. So not that it's okay at all, but it was more like, oh, wow. It's not just me. Yeah. And it's a bit weird because it was, I don't know whether comforting is the right word, but I don't know, it just made it felt better. Maybe it's maybe it's shared hardship. So I had a, a similar experience when I was, I was chatting to one of the lads and I didn't I didn't mention anything, but he said something like, Oh, when I lost my dad. And I was like, I was like, You lost your dad? You know, and then and, and that's that same thing where it's like, yeah, you you sort of it's that shared shared hard not shared hardship but it's like like commonality almost isn't it yeah yeah but it is it's definitely yeah it is is reassuring to to talk to someone who's been through it and and they like yeah and because they say oh for me this is how this happened and this is how that happened and and what helped them you know and then it's and i think like the you wouldn't get that unless you kind of lay your cards on the table and say, "This is what I'm. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm dealing with." Because then other people are like, "Oh well, I've dealt with that." And what would you say to anyone that might be going through that now? Um, just, just exactly that. You know, it's not, it's not a bad thing to to lay your cards on the table and say, "This is what I'm dealing with." I'm, you know, and just kind of, you know, it's not, it's not bad to struggle with things like that like you should struggle with things like that that should hurt that should be painful it's not it's i, I think with like around the the topic of mental health there's we don't want to like i wouldn't say that's that's not someone struggling with their mental health that's that is grief and loss and that's natural and it has it has a you have a grieving period you know so that's that's um, inevitable that you're going to feel low when you're dealing with with that sort of stuff. I think when it continues and affects your life sort of longer than a ex- not acceptable period, but longer than a kind of allocated period, and it starts affecting you, that's that's when we can kind of class it as a mental health problem. But feeling down because you've lost your parent is, of, of course, it's part of the process. I suppose you you need to, you need to do that, and I suppose for I suppose for what it's worth, what I'd offer, you don't have to do it on your own. No. Like pe- people genuinely want to help. And and I think they the old adage, isn't it? Um, a problem shared is a problem halved. Although that you don't want to, actually it does help. Yeah. Really does help. Let's move on to magic. Yeah. A fascinating subject, I think. If you were going to speak to an astronaut and a magician, they'd be the two most interesting people in the world because everyone they're sort of like mysterious and everyone wants to know about it. So where did magic enter your life? Well, when I was a young lad, I, I looked at magic with fascination, as I think most young lads would do. It's, it's a very interesting thing. But like I said, I, I kind of left it alone. I didn't get involved with it because I was already skinny and small and shy and I didn't I didn't then want to be like this weird the weird kid doing magic so I just left it alone um and it wasn't until I went up to four five commando that I saw another marine performing sleight of hand magic and 
So when you say sleight of hand magic, what do you mean by that? So sleight of hand magic is manipulating the cards and performing magic with normal cards. Up until that point, I'd seen people do tricks with trick cards. And I was like, okay, you know, like a trick pack of cards and you can, and I was like, okay. But this guy was, was literally like just changing cards from one card to another. And it was so visual. I was like, what, what the hell is he doing? Like, I, I want to do that. Like I was, I was so, I just absolutely loved it. And then, and that kind of triggered it. I think, so by this point now, I'm, I've bulked out a little bit. I'm a Marine. I'm not wanting to be everyone else. I'm, I'm, I've accepted who I am. And it was, I was happy to do magic. It's like, I don't care if it's, if it's geeky and weird. And I think obviously with people like Dynamo, David Blaine, Darren Brown, magic is, is it became cool, you know, so it lost that, lost some of that stigma that was attached to it when you then started having street. When, when Paul Daniels was doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, it did, it did have that, you know, and I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of weird people in the magic world. I've, I've kind of dipped my toe in the magic world and I don't really fit in there. I prefer being in the Marine world doing magic for the Marines. Um, but yeah, that, that, when I started at four or five, this guy gave me a book on, on how to, I couldn't shuffle cards. I couldn't do anything. I was hopeless. Um, but I had this, I was, I was passionate about it and it's something that kept coming back to and coming back to. Uh, and then I guess over the years, I, I naturally progressed with it. And as I progressed and I'd show the lads, then it was this kind of, it was, it would spiral. It would, there's, oh, show some magic, do some magic. So then I'd do some more magic. Then I'd want to learn stuff to impress them. And then it was like, oh, can you come do some in the mess? Can you do some for the Christmas party or for the charity dinners? And the lads were saying, you know that magic you do? Can you come and do some around my wedding? So, and then when I started performing and performing, then it's like, well, I, I've got to be better. I'm, I'm the magician now. I've got, I've got to, um, yeah, I've got to up my game with it. So how, so how did you learn though? I mean, like, you know, I suppose you sort of answered the question a little bit, but like where he gave you a book, but yeah. so how do I sit here now and learn <laughs> magic? You know, how, where, like, because there'll be other people like you that are interested. Yeah. Where's the start point? Google? Yeah. I mean, you can get a lot, lot off the internet. Um, the only thing is you kind of, you're sitting at a certain level, you know, people will reveal how to do simple tricks, but they're not going to reveal, well, like the mass magician does, he reveals like big stage illusions, but they're not practical. And then you've got all the sort of easy stuff that you could learn off YouTube, but then you've got that middle, middle section there where um, there are magic societies around, you know, every town's kind of got like a magic society. There's a lot of stuff online like kind of closed communities and but like I say it's a bit it's a bit weird and a bit geeky so I've got a couple of friends who who were magicians and I look at what they're doing and um I sort of I'll maybe ask them for for help with with different bits and they'll send me over yeah because I mean you know it's not it's not like there's a Hogwarts line about the place where you can just go I fancy learning magic I mean if I wanted to learn football I'd go to the local football club and yeah. the, the coaches will teach me. I mean, magic seems that mysterious. Like you said, secret societies. I mean, like, how does that, I, I don't even know. Like, people will be like, going, well, how does that work? You know, like, what? Yeah. Like, you knock on the door and go, hi, how you doing? <laughs> I think, yeah, if someone was wanting to get into magic, um, there's obviously a lot of stuff on online, but a magic community, a magic society where there'd be a club and the clubs will maybe meet. Um, you know, maybe maybe twice a month or something like that and just look at when they're meeting and you can go along um, and sort of go through that process if you if you were serious about becoming a performer. Uh, but like I say, they are, you know, I think the clubs are a bit weird. There's, there's, there's a lot of stuff online. Um, and the thing is, it's like, it's like anything you get into. So say you go into road cycling. I don't know if you road cycle or not, but just using that as an example, you get into road cycling you then start looking at road road race bikes. You start chatting to other people. You then see someone else look up on a on a race, and you're like, "Oh, what's that bike? Oh, look at what components have you got on that?" And then you 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 when you start looking into something, you then see it more. 
So if you, you know, if you were interested in magic, you start looking around, then you'll meet someone else who maybe does a bit of card magic and you chat to them and they, they say, oh, you should check this guy out. And it just builds. Once you start going down it, it will, it will come together. Got it. How does it feel when you're performing for people? Um, well, I, I sort of love it and hate it. It's a weird one. Um, I used to really love it. And it was the ability to create joy. And I could just, I could, I could literally go to a group of random people at a table in a bar and I'd say, hey, check this out and, and just do some magic. And you've got the initial kind of cold response, like, who's this bloke? Then you've got the stigma attached to it. Why is this bloke out with a pack of cards? Very quickly, those two things fall away when they start seeing the magic and like, that's, that's amazing. You know, and like, you've gone from like, not even just a, a neutral group, you've gone from potentially a cold group to then them like, wow, that's amazing, like smiling. And it's like, the more that my audience buzz from my performance, the more I want to deliver. If I'm, if I'm performing and the audience is really cold, I find that really hard to work with. Um, I had a, a private party with um, like these Russians and they were, it was quite cold and I found it really hard to kind of go, hey, yeah, like check this out, you know. Um, but when, when you have people who are just like losing their mind over it, loving it, it's like, well, you think that's good, check this out, you know, and then you just start, you start just ramping it up. But I think, yeah, just that, the ability to create joy, it, it's, that's, that's essentially what's kept me performing. Um, and the hate, the hate it part was self-inflicted pressure. Because I, um, I remember seeing a little uh, video clip. Uh, obviously, I follow your Instagram and, and a video clip of a, uh, of a movie that you managed to black yourself into. And you're doing a little card trick to, um, to, the, to the, the main star of that movie. It uh, was that an opportunity where you just went, hi, do you want to see a trick? Like, how does that work? Well, it's, it's yeah, yeah. Just just grabbing an opportunity when it presents itself. Because there's, um, I was, I was work, so I did a, a few films and I was working on um, one of the Avengers films with Chris Hemsworth. And I was nervous. And he's there and he's like the biggest most essence bloke you've ever seen it's and Thor like, man like it's yeah. like you can't it's Thor of course it's going to be nervous I, I just like stood there and like looked at him um, and nothing happened like opportunity completely missed um, what, so you did some tricks for him no not, not for Chris Hemsworth no I, I, I let I let that opportunity slide and, and I, it's one of those things that I I just regret so when I, I was working with Gerard Butler I was like Hey Jerry, check this. And I did I, I did that that trick with like I lit some fire and like produced a fire and produced a lollipop. Yeah, that's and, smooth, that is, by the way. That's smooth. Thank you. He, inv he invited me back to his his trailer. And then the next thing I know, I'm in like his his trailer and we're chatting, we're talking about magic. And at the time, like when I left the Marines, I kitted out a, a van into like this surf van adventure van. Uh, and I was kind of living in my van and uh I was telling him about it and like doing the magic and yeah, it was, it was mad. It was quite surreal. It was really, it was really cool. But I, yeah, I think it's, it's just learning that if you get an opportunity, you have to go then. And uh, one of, one of uh, a lyric from Eminem's song, you know, um, you know, if you've got one shot, one opportunity, you know, you take it or, or let it, let it slide. And it's like, you've got to take that opportunity. Like I, I regret not going into the Marines earlier. I regret not performing for Chris Hemsworth when I had the opportunity because I was there. I had a pack of cards. I was good to go. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just got to take those opportunities. Like, yeah, Gerard Butler was, was amazing. It was a great opportunity. I'm glad I did. And, and luckily there's another, another Marine had sort of come in and filmed it. So of course it, he did. Of course he did. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. If, it, if it's not on Insta, it didn't happen, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but I think I think that's probably a really good good note to finish on. Um, you know, it, it it comes nicely full circle into what you said before about your venture that you're into now. It's about taking action, and and you are an expert through experience of hardship, character building, self doubt, confidence. You know entertainment there's a whole mixture that's thrown into 
the reason why you are where you are now. And and I think the the single biggest takeaway that I've learned from you today, so thank you very much, is you've got to take action and take opportunity. Yeah, thank you. 100%. Mate, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for being on the show today. Oh, thank, thank you for having me on. It's been good to chat.